0: Welcome to a special highlights program from four satellite symposia held at the recent ONS Congress in San Diego. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. The format for each meeting was identical and based on a rounds approach to education. In each meeting, we asked two oncology nurses to select cases from their practices and present these to two faculty physician investigators and our audience, who also responded to the discussion using keypad polling devices. We begin with non-Hodgkin lymphoma and CLL with nurses Miss Amy Goodrich and Miss Lisa Downs and Dr. Myron Chutchman and Dr. Stephanie Gregory. Ms. Goodrich began by presenting a young patient from her practice.
1: He is a 20-year-old college student, and his ultimate diagnosis was diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. He's a martial artist and was having hip pain and thought that it was a spar physical contact during his martial arts that was the cause of the pain. Eventually, he had an MRI or some x-rays done, and he had a very large mass. Really, his entire hemipelvis was involved. He had a soft tissue mass, and so his ultimate diagnosis was diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and he had rather limited disease in terms of the extensiveness throughout his body. His LDH was very high. He had lost 25 pounds. So he was quite sick, even though his disease was relatively contained. It was very bulky.
0: Maybe we can just take a step back and talk a little bit about him as a person What was it like when you first met him? I imagine 20 years old, finding out you have lymphoma must have been a complete shock.
1: It was a shock, and as all of you in this room are aware, the younger people really work on a lot of denial, and he was definitely in denial. This was not going to impact his life, even though he had an obvious limp. He had lost 25 pounds, but this was still not going to impact his life, although it did in the end. He was a full-time college student, so that was a very big change for him that we basically said, there's no way you're going to be able to get CHOP and continue to take a full-time course load.
0: Now, what was his family's situation? Were his parents involved?
1: He has parents and a sister, and his parents are actually very hovering and very protective, and that was very difficult for him that they were, you know, he was at the point in his life where he was becoming independent, and now all of a sudden he is totally dependent on his parents again. That was very difficult.
0: Lisa, any comments on the younger patient with the lymphoma and what your experience is in terms of the spectrum of how they respond to Would deal with it
2: it varies greatly whether or not they have family support and what's going on in their lives we have so many young patients now and also with odd diagnoses like I had an 18 year old with CLL wow um, and that's really sort of unheard of so it is very shocking and it's life altering for these people but I think a lot of it depends on how much support they have and what's going on in their lives
0: so let's flip over to the medical aspects of this. Stephanie, we have a biopsy saying this patient has diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. It sounds like he's symptomatic. What else do you need to know in order to start thinking about a treatment plan for a patient like this?
3: Well, obviously, you need to make sure that your complete staging workup is done We would certainly do the CAT scans, the PET scan, but we would look at what we call the IPI, the International Prognostic Index. His LDH is very elevated. You look at the stage of the disease and, you know, this is an unusual presentation. We usually think of lymphomas occurring in lymph nodes. So this is really an extranodal presentation and it's extensive. It's not, we say 2B, but it's an extensive involvement of an extranodal site.
0: So, Myron, what would you say to a patient like this about the possibility of And If they really pushed you in numbers, what kind of numbers would you give?
4: I mean, in general, based on our CHOP data, I think that we've improved at least 10 to 15% cure rates. historically with CHOP alone. And then also it's hard because you have to depend on the prognostic. The IPI actually may influence it. But in general, we tell people about half patients can be treated with CHOP, could be cured. I think about I tell patients around 65% chance that you can be cured with rituximab-chop-type-based therapy up front. However, and we were just saying about IPI, unfortunately, this guy's a good risk IPI, although he's not good risk. And the other thing is that independently, his bulky tumor is a bad prognostic factor. And B symptoms, I always tell the fellows and medical students, B means bad. So it's not good for you to have B symptoms. So, But those are two independent factors that we have to put in our brain when we talk to patients. So it's very difficult. I mean, we should tell them there's better than a 50% chance that they can be cured, but that means that they have to appreciate that they can still be cured if they don't get cured with initial therapy, but they may need additional treatment.
0: I'm curious, Amy, did this specific type of discussion occur with either this patient or his parents? And was he the kind of person or his family out there on the web getting information, or were they just sort of... You know, sort of freaked out saying, what do we do?
1: No, they were not on the web getting information at all. And we did have that discussion that the goal was to cure the disease. And because he didn't fit in a nice little package, it was really hard to give him numbers.
0: Now, maybe you can bring us up to date on this patient because he actually participated in a trial to try to see if we can maybe move that 65% or whatever number you want to give which looks at one of the new strategies to try to improve results. But what actually happened in terms of the decision about treatment and maybe just bring us right up to date?
1: Right, so we talked to him about the ECOG study that patients got started on standard therapy with CHOP and then midway through had a PET scan done. If the PET scan was positive, they were switched to ice, rice. If the PET scan was negative, they just went on to finish out six cycles of
0: CHOP. Stephanie, can you comment a little bit about what the thinking is in trying to do a study like this?
3: This is a new concept, an early PET scan, You know, if we can say you're responding well after two cycles, three cycles of chemo, and we do a PET scan, and it's still positive, should we be moving on to a more aggressive treatment, for example, high-dose chemo and stem cell rescue? And that was piloted at Memorial Sloan Kettering. We can talk a little bit about that also.
0: What about using, Lisa, this kind of approach outside of protocol setting? We know from having surveyed oncologists that a lot of them just go ahead and do this on their patients' There's an issue whether they can even get a PET scan, whether the insurance is going to improve it, and whether it even is a logical, I mean, it sort of makes sense, but whether it really helps people. What do you do in your own practice? Practice,
2: yeah. We don't usually follow this particular type of protocol, but we would if the PET was positive after three to four cycles, then switch over to autologous transplant, like Stephanie was saying. There isn't a whole lot of studies that say that that's the right thing to do, but it is sort of intuitive, and when you talk to patients, you sort of make that decisions with the patients and explain what your reasoning is, and they usually sort of go along with you. It's a little bit more clear in somebody who has a large cell lymphoma rather than a low-grade lymphoma, too, what to do.
0: And I guess, Myron, you know, there's a question about whether or not if the PET scan really is positive after three cycles, is that really tumor or not, and do you need to go in and biopsy it?
4: I think that's a very important point, and especially, I think, today with the use of biologic, especially with rituximab, which induces a local inflammatory response, we probably are seeing more and more of it. When you have a PET scan that's lighting up, we're not sure it's residual tumor or, or a lot of inflammation maybe in the local site. So before you change treatments and you go into, personally, into transplant, you should be biopsying the patients to prove its tumor. The other point I just wanted to make is that recent data suggests the most informative PET scan is the one at the completion of therapy, not the interim treatments.
0: So let's get back to this patient and also supportive care relative to this. Now, he got R-CHOP, and then he got switched over based on the fact that PET scan was still positive to R-ICE. What is your experience, Amy, in terms of nausea, vomiting, with R-CHOP and R-ICE, and what actually happened with him?
1: So typically with r people have some nausea and vomiting. You're usually able to control them relatively easily. We tend to have a little harder time with ice, but still you can control people. Um, What would you say the
0: number is for RCHOP that you see real serious problems with nausea and vomiting? What number would you give to the patient?
1: So patients who you truly have a very difficult time controlling, I would say maybe 10%. You know, most of them can be controlled with Zofrans and Anzimets and things like that. Very few patients we have to move on to, you know, amend or those sorts of drugs. What
0: was the supportive care that you gave to him during the two treatments?
1: So he was an aberration in that he really did have significant nausea and vomiting with the CHOP. He also got intrathecal therapy because of the bone involvement and he very quickly went to amend. We maxed him out. We had our palliative care people all over him and he still required IV antiemetics on a very regular basis, very regular hydration. This was a guy who was getting in trouble very, very quickly with dehydration. His electrolytes were a disaster. And I told Dr. Love I chose him because truly without the nurses who were taking care of him, he would be dead he would absolutely be dead.
0: Amy, how did this, you know, it sounds like a very distressing experience for him. Oh,
1: it was. How did It, it
0: affect him as a person? It
1: was horrible. He was very depressed. He stopped taking classes. He couldn't engage in his martial arts. His parents watched him like a hawk. It was really, really difficult for him. And then the nausea and vomiting. I mean, this kid was, I mean, he was a kid, 20. He's technically a man, but he was a kid. And this was a really rough go for him. But it was amazing the support that the nurses gave him. They were all over him. Fortunately, the main two nurses who took care of him had children his age, so really were able to connect with him and you know be on him in a very appropriate way, both from a nursing perspective and from a psychosocial perspective. So, I mean, truly, he would be dead without them. They truly saved his life. We never would have been able to give him all that therapy had the nurses not taken such aggressive care of him.
0: Lisa, I guess it's important to differentiate sadness from depression. I mean, anybody who's got cancer is going to be sad. But when you start talking about not being able to sleep, losing weight, et cetera, this situation, it sounds like this is almost appropriate you know, emotional response right. to go through that. What's your experience, though, Lisa, in terms of actual depression that comes on because of you know the actual experience of having to confront the disease?
2: Yeah, it varies greatly, and each patient is an individual. I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. Maybe half of the patients really do end up having a severe depression, I personally find it more prevalent in patients who have an indolent disease and sort of have to live with this disease and get retreated over and over again. They tend to get more depressed than somebody who has sort of a reactive depression to what's going on in the short term and then is able to recover if they do well and get better from it.
0: You know, it'd be really great if we had as much research on some of the supportive care measures. And there are places, including yours, Stephanie, that have integrative medicine approaches What do they do, and how would they have helped with a patient like this?
3: Right. Well, this actually came out from an IOM, Institute of Medicine, report a couple of years ago that really stressed the underdevelopment of the aspect of the psychosocial care of patients with cancer. And one of their dictums was that if every cancer center could develop some kind of a supportive care program for the psychological issues of their patients. So we have what is called Integrative Cancer Medicine Program. And actually, all of our new patients theoretically can be seen by a psychologist at the time of their diagnosis, and that incorporates also nutritional counseling, massage therapy, biofeedback, and actually acupuncture, which I have used on several patients for both anxiety and for pain control.
0: Lisa, you know, we actually visited the integrative program at Memorial that Barry Castle is the head of, and it was interesting. One of the things that you really talked up that they were very interested in was massage, Now, that may be a problem in terms of getting it paid for, but they even had courses for massage therapists for cancer patients. What are your thoughts about some of the complementary things that can be done in addition to counseling, et cetera, but physical things like acupuncture, massage?
2: Yeah, I think it's great, and I think every cancer center should probably have something attached like that. The problem becomes budgets. (laughs) I know we had some of these things in place. We even had an artist for an art program that would go to the chemotherapy suite, and they would make these little tiles and then hang them up around the chemotherapy suite, which was really nice, but unfortunately, about four years ago, they cut her position. So it is difficult in this day and age to get these things, but I think it's extremely important and very helpful for the patients.
0: In terms of other strategies, Myron, that have looked at trying to improve the cure rate I'm sure everybody in this room who works in a general oncology setting is aware of dose-dense chemotherapy for breast cancer, where it's given every two weeks with growth factor support. That's been done now for about nine or ten years. But this same strategy has been looked at with this situation, diffuse large B-cell. This was just presented at the ASH meeting. What do we know right now about the strategy? We don't find too many docs in practice doing it off-study. Well, what's happening is that, for example, this RCHOP,
4: giving it every two weeks, 14 days instead of every 21. This was a French study, but again, people quibble. They say it's an interim analysis. But that and an English study that was presented at ASCO the year before indicated that you don't do better with RCHOP-14 than you do with RCHOP-21. And other strategies, though, I think what the future is going to hold. For example, in the CLGB, we have a large study looking at patients being randomized between RCHOP or rituximab and dose-adjusted EPOC. And those patients actually are getting tissue sent to the NIH for the future that Lou Stout will be looking at the actual genetic profile of the tumor and then trying to relate that with responsiveness to the actual one therapy or the other, see if maybe one treatment is better than another. I think we're going to be looking at, actually, risk analysis, stratification, and eventually we're going to see individualized therapy for these patients.
0: Stephanie, even though there's not a lot of this strategy to be done outside of protocol, there is some... What about the supportive care implications if a patient going to get dose-dense therapy? One of the differences between dose-dense therapy in this situation and breast cancer is the oncovin. So the potential for neurotoxicity may be more fatigue. In breast cancer, these patients seem to fly through it how about in lymphoma yeah
3: and i think that one of the criticisms of this study was that unfortunately we all know that if you're going to give RCHOP chop every 14 days you must give growth factor support it was at the option of the physician whether or not he gave growth support and that's why it came out that there was no difference between r14 and r21 in reality I think that in Europe, the tendency is that they feel R14 is a better approach. If you're going to do it, you must give support. And the other thing is the NCC guidelines now, at least for patients over the age of 65, routinely up front, you give a growth factor.
0: What about neurotoxicity with the oncogen kind of getting more squeezed in there quicker? Do you see that? Not really. Hmm. Interesting. So let's bring us up to date on this patient. Where is he right now?
1: So he is 18 months out from his therapy. He was pet negative at the end of his four cycles of rice, and he's doing great. He's back in school. His affect is perfectly appropriate. He's got a little bit of a limp, but other than that, he's no worse for the wear.
0: How do you think this affected him and his family as people?
1: Well, he changed his major to psychology. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so it definitely, it definitely impacted
4: him. <laughs> I'm sure the parents are very happy.
1: <laughs> Wait, what was his major first? Yeah, I, you know what? I don't, I think it was business or something, something <laughs> totally unrelated. But yeah.
0: <laughs> Okay, now we're going to get into the second case of follicular lymphoma and maybe a more common situation. Lisa, can you present the patient?
2: Sure. This is a 70-year-old woman with a grade one follicular lymphoma. She presented with swelling of her leg and ended up that she had involvement in the iliac chain. And after comprehensive staging, that was all she had was just this one area of follicular lymphoma. So technically speaking, she was a stage one Follicular lymphoma, which is actually a rare find, only about 15% of patients are truly diagnosed at stage one. Problem with it, it was a sort of bulky area. I think the mass was at least six centimeters when she was diagnosed. So. It's a little bit worse if it's a bulky area. If you really find a grade one that's a small area and contained in one place, you can radiate that with about 40% cure rate in those patients. So, uh,
0: What was this woman's life situation? And she any was other a, a widower.
2: She was a retired secretary surrounded by all her girlfriends that used to come to the appointments with her. So she did have support. And she was very healthy otherwise, had no comorbid illnesses. She was a vibrant woman.
0: Who came with her, if anyone, to the clinic visit? One of
2: her girlfriends would come with her. They were so cute. They'd come with their, you know, tea and coffee and have, like, a little party in the chemo area.
0: You know, this crosses every cancer line in terms of the shock that people feel and the expectation that, you know, maybe they're not going to be alive six months from now. What was her personal reaction? She
2: was actually pretty okay with it. You know, when you present these things, it's a grade one, so this is a low-grade lymphoma, you know, I don't want to say that she's not young but she's 70 years old so she's probably gonna do fine and not die of her disease and so that was very comforting when she did hear that if she was 30 years old then they get really scared and it alters their life but she was you know retired and sort of enjoying her life and what we did for treatment didn't really change that that much so she was pretty well adjusted
0: so what was the next step
2: so she ended up getting radiation therapy, and because it was a bulky mass, not that there's any research to support this, but we did give her Rituxan maintenance as well. There is research to support Rituxan maintenance and follicular lymphoma in general, but when you're a grade one, it becomes sort of a questionable issue whether or not you need to give it. But since Rituxan is pretty easy to give and it's well-tolerated, we did give her Rituxan for two years in maintenance. Then what? She was okay for, I think it was about a year, which is sort of typical for rituxan alone to relapse within a year after that. And she did relapse with a, a mass that actually encased a lot of her large vessels in her retroperitoneum. So we would normally rebiopsy something like that, but it became a difficult issue because it was difficult to get to. And so we ended up not re and sort of hoping that she had the same type of thing.
0: Myron, what would you be thinking at this point?
4: Well, it's interesting that with the maintenance, it didn't cure the patient. It's often the case is that, you know, the idea is progression-free survival was prolonged. I think a couple points is that this was, I guess, a substantial relapse. And as you're saying, you might be thinking transformation. transformation. Yeah,
2: but, for LDH was normal, though. Right,
4: so. LDH. Can and you the just obstacle. explain
0: what transformation is? Yeah, transformation
4: is typically when you go from a low histology, like a follicular grade one, and most historically be if you develop the diffuse large B cell lymphoma
0: so you go from case 2 to case 1
4: yeah and it's quite it's not too subtle i mean even though you have bulky nodes as mentioned LDH being normal goes against that and another trick you could do is do a pet scan although follicular lymphoma's often light up if there's truly an area of transformation, patients don't transform all their nodal sites. It's usually in just one area, and it's actually growing more rapidly than other areas, but also be very positive on a very dark black ink blot on a PET scan, whereas the other areas that were, say, more low-grade would be lighter or not as intense.
2: Yeah, her SUV, I think, was five, so
4: Yeah, so not it wouldn't be as suspicious. Right? So,
0: Stephanie, just you know, following up a little bit more on this issue, what would the implication be from a treatment point of view in a patient like this in terms of whether it's transformed, would it actually change the treatment?
3: Yes, it would. The transformation carries with it in general a poor prognosis. And years ago we were told, oh, if you get a transformation, you have about a six month survival after that. And we now know that's not true necessarily, that you can have, as Myron mentioned, a local transformation. And we certainly would treat it more aggressively. That's the kind of treatment you'd want to include an anthracycline. You'd have an R Chop regimen, perhaps. And I think at that point if this were a young person, we move them on to transplant at times. With some long-term survivals.
0: What would you be thinking specifically, though, Myron, in terms of options for treatment at this point? You would think about in a patient that probably still has
4: low-grade lymphoma, you basically have a large list of things to choose from. And I also agree that quality of life has to be a major issue that you have to consider. I mean, and rituximab, we have a lot of press recently, and good data suggesting that it's actually a very exciting old drug, as we say, that 30 years ago from East Germany that's now really very exciting. And because of the quality of life and the toxicity profile, that actually would be a perfect combination of better muscle for this type of patient. Using RCVP, RCHOP, fludarabine-based therapy. Fludarabine is not the very toxic regimen, especially if you don't use anthracyclines with it. That would not be unreasonable before the bendamustine era. But I think this is actually a very great... Uh, and those
2: are all the trust. things we actually presented to her, as well as radioimmunotherapy. What so. was
0: your take in terms of if she were to say to you, okay, if I compare, let's say, rituximab with either bendamustine or RCVP or R-chop, how is that going to affect my quality of life and side effects? Lisa, what would you say or what did you tell her if that came up?
2: Oh, it did come up. We did discuss all of those options. And so we did talk about the difference between bendamustine, rituxan, and chop mostly and what the benefits and you know risks were. And it was a huge discussion, actually, because we didn't re-biopsy her, so we weren't absolutely positive that this wasn't an aggressive disease. But what we discussed, basically, was that there's cardiotoxicity with rituxan CHOP that they don't have with bendamustine and then alopecia, and there's probably more immunosuppression with chop, and those kind of things. So it was a big discussion with this you know, 70-year-old person, how she was going to tolerate it.
0: We've talked a lot in the last couple days about patients' attitudes towards treatment, the patient who's very, very oriented to toxicity, the patient who's very oriented about, you know, efficacy. Where did this patient sort of fit in? So
2: she actually got a little scared when she relapsed because she did have a potential for cure with that first therapy, and so she was a little bit shaken this time. And the other thing that happened was her physician left our practice who originally treated her, and so she was sort of just meeting us and getting to know us a little bit. So she was a little bit on the nervous side. I actually sent her to our psychologist to have a talk with him, and she's doing fine now. She did recruit her friends to come back with her, and they got their bendamustine (laughs) together in the chemo area. So she pulled in her support again, and she did okay.
0: Amy, I've heard people say, oncologists and oncology nurses say, they strongly encourage patients to take someone with them when they go to get chemotherapy do you give that advice to your patients? and oh, How absolutely. much do you think it helps?
1: I think it helps tremendously. I mean, we all know the data out there that everybody remembers about 10%. So the more people you have, the more 10% you have. I encourage people to take notes, to have a notebook. I say, I know it's corny. Get a composition book. And when you think of something, write it down. And I tell patients, I worry when you don't come in with a list. And I worry when you come alone. So I definitely encourage people to maximize their support system and be organized.
0: All right, what happened with this lady? So she chose to get bendamustine. She had chose bendamustine. We're going to yeah. talk about the trial and the data that we have on this treatment and maybe compare what happened to her to what happened to the patients in the study. What happened?
2: So she got six cycles altogether of Benda and went into complete remission after her fourth and has been in remission since she tolerated it very well with a little bit of growth factor support in the end of her therapy.
0: Any loss of hair? Nope. GI toxicity? Nope. What have you seen, Amy, in terms of bendomustine and side effects and toxicity? I I
1: love it. I love it. It's a great drug. It's an easy sell. It's a great regimen that you'll see, but side effect-wise, very minor nausea minor, minor fatigue, no alopecia, really very different from CHOP-R or CVPR.
0: So, Stephanie, you were nice enough to introduce me to Dr. Rummel in December when he was about to present this presentation, which I couldn't even get in the video part of the presentation. It was like (laughs) the Beatles were there. I mean, it, it was probably the biggest presentation at ASH and Really, you know, we talk about practice changing, but really, it is practice changing. And maybe you can talk about this trial.
3: Yes. So I was going to say, two years ago, you never would have heard of bendamustine, and it was actually Dr. Rummel who did a very large study, frontline follicular lymphoma, advanced disease, and found the interim analysis was that they were comparable. But this year at ASH, he actually less toxicity, better progression-free survival. BR is winning out. Now we don't have a long-term follow-up, and I think that's why some people. People are looking at this a little bit, but many of the cooperative groups have actually changed their R-CHOP regimen to now BR for frontline, and you talk to anyone in the relapse setting for almost every disease lymphoma, we're talking about BR in combination.
0: One of the things I noticed was peripheral neuropathy being a lot less with the BR. Of course, you have the oncovin in there, a lot less neutropenia. Anything else you want to comment on in terms of side effects? And also in the top there in terms of progression-free survival.
3: Just that everything favors BR at this point, and I think that one of the issues certainly is going to be, can you harvest stem cells after this? I mean, these are some of these patients will be younger patients. It's always the same issue. Is this an alkylator with purine characteristics? If these patients relapse after this and they're young and they go on to an auto transplant, can we harvest stem cells? There was a small poster at ASH addressing that. It was small numbers. It looked like they could mobilize stem cells. We
0: sometimes get together a bunch of investigators, and we do like what we call a think tank. And Myron and Stephanie were one we had a few months ago. And Myron, I think it was a month after this was presented, and I haven't really talked to you about it since then. But at that point, I was asking you, are you using BR yet? And you were kind of like, hmm, I, maybe I need to see the paper published, or et cetera. Still not too sure? Well,
4: I'm using Betomus or tuxmap, and I said this, in the case of a, especially an older patient or cardiotoxicity in patients who have underlying cardiac problems, it's a wonderful combination to use even now. But, but you the, need to watch DOSE. Right. DOSE and the final publication hasn't been out yet to really look at the fine print. The other thing is, you know, it, always wonder, you know, the CR rates are actually quite low, 30 40% range seems somewhat low for patients, but depending on the patient population that was treated. And the other thing is that there is a fair amount of skin reactions that I think is understated. And we were involved in the initial work with beta-muscine four, five years ago when it came out. And sometimes there are other side effects that are not really well publicized. So I think as you get more and more patients on this drug, we're going to appreciate that there may be additional toxicity. And what Stephanie just said, Dose has to be de-escalated in a significant number of patients.
0: It's really interesting to see what it takes to change people's practice, particularly first therapy, the first systemic therapy that somebody gets. We were talking about dose-dense therapy. I remember when that came out, after a year, only about a third of oncologists. It took about two years for people to process it. So, yeah, the older patient like this one, fine, Myron, but what about the same situation the patient's 50?
4: I think that the tried-and-true, like an R-CHOP type of approach has a long, long, many decades of good data suggesting it's an effective therapy. The other thing that's really not well pointed out is that all the beta muscular data was only in follicular from a grade one and grade two. So, grade 3A and 3B, which makes a substantial proportion of our follicular lymphomas, were not tested in this large study.
2: Also, patients with follicular lymphoma have a heterogeneous disease, so there may be some hidden areas of transformation within a patient that you don't know about, and there's no data to back up transformation in bendamustine and Right. Uh,
3: I would like to comment, though, to the credit of the company who now has bendamustine, they have actually developed a global steering committee looking at long-term side effects. They are very much on top of this because... Because this was not done when it was studied in Germany. We're looking at many, and many of the aspects for long-term follow-up, including the nausea, the vomiting, the MDS, all of those. So there's a real effort made. And the other thing I just wanted to point out, a few years ago, all we were talking about was the lymphocare study, and bendamustine wasn't even in there at that point. It was RCHOP, it was RCVP, and then maybe a few people using flutarabine. That's all changed.
0: Right. That lymphocare study basically looked at how people were treated in the United States. But, Stephanie, i got to get a counterpoint here. Do you agree with Myron? Same patient, 50 years old. You're still bar chop?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think that there are differences in patients. And I'm not sure it's necessarily age, but I think it may be the presentation of their disease. Is this frontline treatment? How soon are they relapsing? I think until we have longer data, RCHOP is still being used primarily.
0: So a patient comes to you for a second opinion, the first opinion in this 50-year-old is to get bendamustine rituximab. Do you say, I don't think this is a good idea? Not or necessarily. it's an okay idea, but that's not really what I would do?
3: Well, I'd like to put them on a the clinical trial, but you know those numbers. <laughs> Come on.
0: <laughs> clinical trial out. That's what they always try to get out of. Really. What would you say about that, though? Would you be okay with uh, You know,
3: with a, f- f- a 50-year-old depends on all their other comorbid conditions can be just as sick as a 70- or 80-year-old. And if they had comorbid conditions, I'd use BR. If they were healthy and they had a worrisome disease, I would probably use r
0: So what would it take for you? You need a study that has enough 50-year-olds in it to feel comfortable, or just a second study? What would it take? The
2: longer-term be- follow-up, I Long think. Long-term term follow-up, yes. Follow-up yeah. Yeah. Follow-up yeah. Of this yeah. term
0: follow-up. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay, what about the other thing I want to ask you about that was presented as an issue, Myron, is collecting stem cells. What would be the role of transplantation in general in follicular lymphoma, and are we concerned when we see a new regimen coming out about the effect on stem cells because of that, and what do we know about BR in stem cells? We don't know much about betamustine. There was a small presentation
4: where it is possible, so it wasn't required. The patients who participated in the study you showed, the betamustine versus RCHOP, patients, some of them… Relapsed. <laughs> …were getting collected. <laughs> And what was weird is that, say, well, see, we could collect these patients. They were not like every patient who could get collected would be or a certain age. So a certain number got collected, a subset, and they were successful in a significant or high percentage of cases with BR or with our chop but that does not prove that all patients, because the ones that probably couldn't get collected because their counts were not good, weren't collected. So you have to be careful when you look at data. I would say to you, collections used to be important when we first did the R-CHOP, and we actually were able to convert you know, patients, even on a molecular level, you get rid of all the molecular and microscopic disease in the marrow. We collected them and put them in the freezer. And out of the patients that we treated at Roswell, zero out of about whatever 15, 20 patients did not get a transplant after 10 years. Basically, you get to freezer burn and you throw it out. So I think that today, because of the new treatments we have, I do not collect patients' stem cells because I think we have a very good chance. Well, most of insurance them companies won't
3: them. let you do that anyway.
4: And it's yeah, expensive; yeah. patients has to pay yeah. for that. Storage we never collect fee for beforehand. And
2: there's also yeah. Mozabill now, so yeah. we're getting better at even collecting right. in patients who have had prior therapy. Right. So. Yeah.
4: so, there is not a major role in Only collecting stem cells. Only collect them if you're going
3: to use them. But how about yeah. the role of transplant, though, in follicular?
4: Recovery? High risk patients, as Stephanie was saying, if somebody was relapsing quickly after good therapy, whether it's R-CHOP or abetamustine, and say after six months they have a fairly quick relapse, you try a second regimen, they're relapsing quickly, that's a bad omen, something's wrong with that patient. That kind of patient may require high-dose intensive therapy. But keeping in mind, though, an autotransplant is just based on using very high doses of drugs, where the patient that's younger may actually be more benefited from an allogeneic transplant, where you get a graft-versus-lymphoma effect, where you actually get a new immune system. But in an older patient, aloe is probably not a very good option. as They're too old for an allogeneic transplant, certain cutoffs, different places. But an autotransplant is still reasonable in a certain patient.
0: So, Stephanie, we're not going to talk about mantle cell lymphoma today, but it's certainly a fascinating disease. There were quite a few mantle cell patients in this venimus rituximab study What did they see there, and where are we right now with mantle cell in general?
3: Yeah, the response rates were very good, in fact, in mantle cell. And again, many of the clinical trials now out there are incorporating bendamustine, if not in frontline therapy, in second-line therapy. But there are both frontline and relapse using bendamustine now. And also, the concept of bendamustine maybe in combination with Velcade, which is very effective in mantle cell. So I think we're changing our approach to mantle cell in trying to decide which patients really need aggressive treatment up front and move right on to transplant or are there patients that maybe have a more indolent mantle cell that you don't have to be that aggressive and that would be a perfect situation for BR treatment.
0: Now one other aspect of this case I like to get some comments on is the issue of rituximab maintenance. Now this patient got rituximab for a couple of years early on it wasn't really a classic maintenance situation <laughs> But this is one of the major trials in this field that's about to be presented at the ASCO meeting, the so-called PRIMA study that looks at rituximab maintenance. And Stephanie, this is probably the number one question we get from oncologists is, when do I use rituximab maintenance? What is it? What are the variations? And what did the PRIMA study look at?
3: Right. Well, really, maintenance with rituximab goes back many, many years when it was presented by Dr. Jomini and also Dr. Hainsworth. And that was mainly in patients who had rather low tumor burden. They were given four weeks of rituximab and then they received maintenance rituximab. And the schedules vary. So back originally, rituximab maintenance meant four infusions given every six months for two years. And then Dr. Jomini from the SAC group in Europe came out and there was a one infusion every two months four times and then some additional data came out and now many people are using one infusion every three months for two years And more recently, Dr. Rummel is using, and ECOG is using one infusion every three months until the patient no longer responds to rituximab, which may mean five, six, seven years, because we're part of that resort trial for ECOG, and I have six patients who are on rituximab maintenance out five and a half years now, with no relapsing. So there are different varieties of what rituxin maintenance is, and although most people say it improves progression-free survival, we have no data that it's going to improve improve overall survival. It's just that patients like to feel that their disease is under control and not to worry about every time they get a CAT scan, you know, is it now coming back? Do I need more treatment? The answer is really not out. The Prima study is going to be positive. I mean, that's going to be the big well, We know that, right, yeah. that, it, right. that it's going to yeah.
0: show a delay in progression. That's and right. Amy, when you talk to patients, how do they sort of value, it? if you look at the Side effects or inconvenience of getting rituximab maintenance versus having a longer period of time where they can remain on treatment?
1: They like it and they want it for the most part because these, for the most part, are low grade patients who have been out there on the internet looking figuring out what's out there. And they do like to feel like they're being treated, that
2: something's being done and we're not just sitting and waiting for this to come back. I actually have a patient on the ECUG study. She's out five and a half years now too without relapse. And she's thinking, this is expensive. I think I want to stop. So there is a little bit of cost that we have to think about. Are you talking about the resort trial? Yeah. Now,
0: that's a really interesting study. In a way, this strategy kind of reminds me of endocrine therapy and breast cancer where you give prolonged therapy and The concept of whether you you give it for a defined period of time, you can see there's a lot of difference of views here, Stephanie. What about the idea, what was looked at in the RESORT trial, and when are we going to find out the results from it?
3: All right, so they're really looking at a number of parameters. And again, remember, these patients had to be low tumor burden, which meant that they didn't have cytopenias, they didn't have massive adenopathy, they didn't have massive splenomegaly. And so they were really some of those patients that we used to watch and wait And so what they're actually looking at is which patients maybe have the gene. They're looking at gene analysis. There are two different types of gene profiles in follicular lymphoma, although we're not as grown up in looking at those as we are with diffuse large B-cell. The other thing they're looking at is the gamma receptors to see if rituximab works better in certain patients with a certain polymorphism for the FC gamma receptors. I mean, they're looking at real and hypogammaglobulinemia and infections.
0: Now, they're also looking at the strategy that a number of the people in the audience supported, which is keep it going until progression and compare that to treating at progression. Amy, what do you find in terms of patients, just in general, who are on long-term rituximab in terms of complications? Stephanie referred to the potential of infections, quality of life, how they feel. What do you see?
1: So where I practice, we stop after two years. We're not doing this trial where you go on and on forever. So we generally stop after two years, you know, basically because the infection risk goes up. And just that there's no data on long-term Rituxan use. And I think, you know, the way to do that is on a trial. But we're not giving Rituxan maintenance for five years to patients.
0: So what has been seen? Do you have any patients on that study, Stephanie? And how long have they been on? Have you seen any problems or complications?
3: Yeah. So, of course, everybody in Chicago has chronic sinusitis. You know, <laughs> and so... Everybody gets infections, but I think you have to balance, is this their chronic sinusitis flaring up, or are they getting more episodes? I've had to take one patient off of the maintenance because of recurrent upper respiratory infections and hypogammaglobulinemia on that trial, and I have five patients on the long-term maintenance. And as I mentioned, all of them now are mature patients. They're out five years.
2: Did it improve her sinus problem, taking
3: her off the Rituxan? Yes. Yes. Of
2: course,
0: that's an experiment of one. Myron, Sorry. what do we know in terms of...
3: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you.
0: <laughs> what about the scientific evidence of long-term rituximab treatment? Do we have numbers that we could give to a patient or what different risks are? And what do we know? I mean, we have the feeling with all the antibodies that in terms of quality of life, it's, you know, very minimal. Do we have any data about that? For ASCO this year, I'm still working on a,
4: actually a presentation looking at potential long-term effects of B cell depletion with, for example, rituximab maintenance. But there's some very clear data coming out that with rituximab, if retreatment works, I mean, Hainsworth looked at that versus a regular standard maintenance arm, or just giving rituximab when you relapse, you actually can have the same length of efficacy, rituximab, for less doses of rituximab And basically, the patient won't get exposed to as much. I'm always concerned about any positive, we'll say, selection pressure. If you keep giving somebody the same antibiotic, for example, for an infection, they can develop resistant organisms. It's hard for me to imagine that a certain amount of resistance will not develop with respect to the lymphoma in patients. And we've worked at that in the laboratory and actually published recently on that topic. It has to be investigated further. We know that people... Who got rituximab, when they get immunizations, they don't have the same ability to be immunized in the future when they lack B cells. And what about other approaches? I mean, Stephanie likes to use radioimmunotherapy. And the cost, I think, is a major impact going to be with the current things that are going on today with respect to how much we're paying for medical care. One dose of maybe a radio labeled antibody or a different antibody a different schedule. Why are we starting right after therapy? What about waiting a year or two and starting when after the patient recovers their immune system? There's a lot of questions that are left unanswered. It's just like this is the approach and we're going to now go, it used to go, you know, for one year to two years to five years, now to forever.
0: Final question to Myron. I mean, B-cells seem like a good thing to have. Why don't we see more problems when we give long-term rituximab?
4: B-cells eventually come back. If you give rituximab and you stop. Within around nine months, you have the replenishment because you're not knocking out the stem cells, the cells that make the B cells, and you're not knocking out the plasma cells, but the mature B cells in between are being knocked out. The question really is what you just said. If you keep going for a long, long, long period of time... We're not sure what repercussions we may be seeing.
0: All right, let's talk a little bit about CLL. And Amy, can you present your 70-year-old woman? Sure.
1: So I have a patient. She's 70 years old. She was actually diagnosed with her CLL in 1995, so has been definitely a frequent flyer. She actually didn't need therapy until 14 years into her diagnosis. So we observed her. did you know her her in 1995? I did not know her. I met her in 99. So she was in the
0: middle of this long observational period that's
3: really long
1: yes and so of course when on her fish study she had a 13q deletion which is the best prognostic indicator for CLL that 13q deletion so very good risk CLL had watched her for a long time
0: how did she do with this idea of observation you know we see this in different like for example prostate cancer and we hear from the urologist that the men really get uncomfortable off treatment of course their alternative is androgen deprivation which is really a symptomatic treatment Here you have other options, including rituximab. How did she handle being off treatment with you know, leukemia?
1: So she handled this remarkably well. She is a very well-educated woman, did lots of research, understood what it was to have this disease and what that 13Q deletion meant. And so Dr. Love charged us, was trying to find cases that were just from a human perspective that were interesting. So this woman is the matriarch of her family. Her husband is demented, she takes care of him full-time, and she is very actively involved in raising her grandchildren, actually has them, four of them, for the whole summer, every summer. One of her daughters has lots of social issues, so is really essentially raising her grandchildren and taking care of a demented husband. So she was really happy to have a disease that she felt, well, it wasn't going to impact her life. You know, she could go on <laughs> for years without, she was, she was totally on board with watching and waiting. So she was somebody who we actually started therapy probably later than we should have because she didn't want to be treated. So by the time we treated her, what really pushed her to treatment was she was having symptomatic splenomegaly. Her spleen was massive, and she was having early satiety and abdominal pain, and her white count at that point was 300,000. She, I mean, we watched her for a long time. And so when we treated her, because she had good risk CLL, because we had been watching her for so long, it was very important for her not to have her life impacted She was requiring therapy around the first of the year, and she wanted to be done and feeling better for the summer so she could have her grandchildren for the summer. So we chose single agent Rituxan. You know, off the shelf, it's probably, you know, for these folks who are older, it's a great option, but it's not the best therapy for CLL. We knew that going into this. She was not somebody with a lot of comorbidities. She really could have tolerated chemotherapy. She had no other health problems, but it was really her social situation that pushed to give her truly the kindest and gentlest therapy that we could give her.
0: Before we go on in terms of what happened, maybe just a few more words about this issue of when to start treatment in CLL, Stephanie. Now, this lady's white count was over 300,000, and Amy said they actually wanted to treat her earlier but couldn't because of the social situation. And we talked about this at a symposium we did at ASH which is if the patient is well, feeling good, doesn't have the splenomegaly, is there a white count with CLL? We go, okay, we got to treat.
3: Yeah, there really is not. You know, I know I've heard other experts in CLL say, oh, they get nervous when it hits above 200,000. I have watched patients with white counts up to 450,000, and I'm sorry, there is no such thing as hyperviscosity syndrome in CLL. It just does not occur. So I don't have a knee jerk when they hit 250,000. If their hemoglobin's okay, their platelets are still okay, they don't have massive adenopathy. I mean, I think once you start seeing bulk of the lymph nodes, and again, remember these old classifications, they didn't have CAT scans. This was just what they were doing in physical examination. So I don't have a white count specifically. It's when they get those progressive disease or symptoms or fevers or night sweats or cytopenias that I really feel you have to go in and treat.
0: Now, Lisa, Amy mentioned that when they did start the rituximab, they used tumor lysis precautions. What are some of the things you think about in terms of tumor lysis and what do you actually do?
2: So we fractionate that first dose of Rituxan in patients. We actually give a very small dose, a total dose of 50 milligrams on day one, 150 milligrams on day two, and then the balance on day three, what would equal 375 per meter squared for all three days. And it's really sort of changed our ability to give Rituxan very easily in these patients. It debulks the patient enough over a shorter period of time that they can tolerate it very well. They'll often still have cytokine release problems, but that's normal and sort of what you want with rituxan, but the actual tumor lysis doesn't usually happen. If you're really afraid of tumor lysis, though, you have to check tumor lysis labs and make sure their electrolytes are corrected. Tumor lysis doesn't happen usually until about three to five days afterward, so that's sort of the time when you want to check their labs.
4: My, Just a comment. Sometimes I do fractionate the rituximab, or if they're not in a clinical trial, I will use chemotherapy alone for the first, first yeah. either first or second trial, debulk them that way, and simply add rituximab. You the know, rituximab I've heard people say
0: that. Flavors. In a way, it seems a little strange. Does that imply that there's more cell kill with the rituximab than the chemo? I think that especially it sensitizes cells,
4: especially if you're using combination rituximab with chemo. I see the two together. Yes, I think that's when you see more.
3: If you go back and look at the early literature of rituximab data, it's these patients that the sudden death, the tumor lysis syndrome, and we really got pulled way back with a few sudden deaths with the high white count. So everybody's always afraid of the really high white count and giving Rituxan alone and just giving it like you give it 375 milligrams on that first day per meter squared.
0: But just to put tumor lysis in perspective, and there was actually like a guidelines kind of paper that came out not too long ago. There's a new agent, case out there. Myron, just sort of looking at the whole field of hematologic oncology, what are the real red flags for tumor lysis syndrome when you're going to be super aggressive? Consider raspier case. Well, what is raspiere case?
4: Yeah, I think a few things. One, that if a patient has bulky disease, we have to be concerned. Second, if they're already starting out with some decreased renal function, creatinine is high, serum or creatinine clearance is low. If patients have circulating tumor cell lymphocytes, either leukemic phase of lymphoma or CLL. You always have to be concerned. And another thing is if you have a very effective therapy that will work quickly, those patients can lice quickly, dump a lot of uric acid into their bloodstream and overcome the kidneys. And also, if you don't use allopurinol before you start therapy, the uric acid will crystallize within the kidneys as well, and then you get worsening. You get worsening kidney failure and all these other problems with the high potassium. et cetera, it builds up and rosburacase actually directly gets rid of the uric acid in the blood. It doesn't work on clearing it out or making the uric acid more soluble like LDH, allopurinol, so it actually is a very effective therapy that could be used in patients but with caution because it's expensive and there are also side effects with it. But in a patient where you're using allopurinol, that you can see evidence. And I think you have to look to find. So keeping in mind that reminding sometimes the physicians, maybe we should check a blood work, the tumor lysis labs, makes kind of sense that people are busy in clinic, they make sure that, and it can happen quickly. So not waiting a week or two weeks, but within after the first few days of starting treatment, tumor lysis lab should be checked. And case is a great drug to have available it, now. It is,
3: and we should mention that until recently we didn't even think of tumor lysis in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. It's really some of these newer agents that are causing that. When you really think of tumor lysis, it's those high-grade lymphomas, the Burkitt lymphoma, the lymphoblastic lymphoma, the great big mediastinal mass that occurs in young people with a high LDH. They're the ones that you're really primed. We didn't expect to see tumor lysis with CLL, and now with some of these, I mean, well I'm sure we'll talk about lenalidomide, but that's something that was very unexpected. Well, maybe
0: this is a good time to talk about some of the systemic strategies and then sort of fit in where this woman's treatment fit. Maybe you want to comment on this, Myron. What do we obtain by adding rituximab to FC, FCR? We know from our studies of oncologists, overall, this is the most common initial therapy of CLL. How do you decide between FCR and other regimens, and what do we know about new approaches such as lenalidomide and other novel agents?
4: I think that basically a lot of the work based from MD Anderson at FCR is espoused as being a phenomenal drug, although quite toxic, and especially in an older patient in their 70s, depending on her comorbidities and her renal function, I would be a little cautious maybe using it. You know, younger patients, it has excellent activity. It can convert people that are positive even at the level of the molecular level from their blood and marrow. But uh, I think they have to be used with caution. I mean fludarabine rituximab is something we more commonly would use in our practice at Roswell, <coughs> unless it's a clinical trial. I think betamusine rituximab is now a lot of data is coming out. The German data is excellent. And this just shows that you're improving survival. I think also what's very common is rituximab has made a major impact in B-cell neoplasms and improved not only the progression-free survival but also
0: overall survival in a lot of cases. So what happened? Can you bring us up to date with this lady? Sure.
1: So her white count came down nicely, her spleen shrunk up beautifully, and we actually gave her John Bird's thrice-weekly rituxan regimen, so she got it three times a week for four weeks.
0: Any tumor lysis issues? She
1: had a little bit of hyperkalemia, that was it. We gave her allopurinol and we very aggressively hydrated her for several days and pulled her in. She was in, you know, three times a week that week, so watched her very closely. So
0: when did you actually see the big drop in the white count in her? How long did it take?
1: It took about a week.
0: Wow. Interesting. But,
1: you know, because we only gave her 100 milligrams that first day, it's a stepped-up approach as well. But pretty quickly, her white count came down. And then within six months, but we got her through the summer, (laughs) within six months, her white count started coming back up again. And she actually just finished up a course of BR. And, again, she's over 70. She's 70 now and, you know, trying to do something kind and gentle because her social situation has not changed. But that's a good regimen for her, and she did very well. And she's actually coming back for her restaging workup within the next couple weeks.
0: Again, maybe comparing her to the other patient on BR, what happened? Alopecia, GI toxicity, myelosuppression?
1: She's like the poster child for BR. We gave her full-dose BR at age 70. She tolerated it. She did not need growth factor. She took, I think, three compazines, the whole 6 cycle of bendamustine just did beautifully.
0: So, Stephanie, can you comment on this paper that came out looking at bendamustine and CLL, and also the issue of dose and schedule in general of bendamustine in different tumors?
3: Right. So, this is actually what led to the approval of bendamustine for chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and this was a comparison to chlorambucil, which many of us in the United States say, well, that's obvious who's going to win. But, you know, in Europe, chlorambucil is still used a great deal. And it's the only drug that's really approved for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And so they had to get FDA approval. They had to compare it to the drug that's approved for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So it's a no-brainer. Bendamustine won out. This led to the approval. This was a 90 milligram per meter squared in the frontline treatment. Now, when you use it in the relapse setting in CLL, you reduce the dose to 70 milligram per meter squared because rituximab is added, and rituximab can cause some neutropenia. The dose in lymphoma is different, and it's too high. In the relapse setting. The the approved dose in the relapse setting is 120 milligrams per meter squared, days one and two, every three weeks. And only, I think, 40 or 50 percent of the patients on that trial really made it through all six cycles. So that dose we all know is too high, and many of us will start with a 70 to 90 milligram per meter squared dose. I see
0: you shaking your head, Lisa. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. We start yeah. at 90 milligrams per meter squared. Yeah. We tend to start at 90 as well. And we'll often say every three to four weeks, <laughs> <laughs> depending yeah. on what they're
4: We, we do four, we weeks. Do four yeah. weeks. We do four it weeks. We Makes it easy for the patient. Yeah, it's it is easier. Really nice.
0: Myron, you were talking about the German study that was just presented. Any comments on what they looked at and saw there?
4: Basically, it's an effective therapy, very high, basically, response rate. 90-plus percent patients responded. And also what they said is that patients, for example... With poor prognostic cytogenetics, the 11q in particular, but especially the 17p minus, which actually a small number—it's only seven patients. Those patients are believed to be relatively resistant to chemotherapy, so there's a tendency to take those patients to. Uh, a lot of times, you can use alemtuzumab, campath in those patients, or you can use, for example, FCR. But they're not as responsive as patients that have other cytogenetic or other risk factors. And those patients, if they're young enough, we really should be considering them for potentially allogeneic stem cell transplant. They're that resistant. But the German study basically compared this one, FCR versus BR. It's just less toxic, I think, in general is what they're going to show. But the efficacy is still very excellent.
0: Stephanie, Myron mentioned lenalidomide. Of course, we were talking about that a lot with myeloma. What an amazing drug. I wish I I knew how it worked. Maybe you can give me a hypothesis why. (laughs)
3: We we don't know how it works, The (laughs) microenvironment. Right, the (laughs) microenvironment, the the cytokines, the maybe antigenesis. We don't know, but it's become really an important drug in many, many of the hematologic malignancies. And now it's being looked at. And I mean, this has been done at Myron Center looking at the lenalidomide. And the dose has been an issue because of something called tumor flare and tumor lysis syndrome. And now lenalidomide is actually being moved up front. It was Faraholi from MD Anderson had a treatment in the front line in the elderly. And here's a trial right there. There you go. So... uh, can you talk res- about
0: what they saw there? Yeah. And also about this flare reaction that they saw and the tumor lysis syndrome issues.
3: So this was an overall response of about 54%. And, you know, in CLL, stable disease is also very good. So when you look at overall response and 40% stable disease and 47% blood CR are pretty good. The tumor flare is the lymph nodes actually swell, they become red, they become tender, and you can treat it with steroids, you can treat them with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, but it has been thought that perhaps the bigger the tumor flare, maybe the better the response. And the other thing is the tumor lysis syndrome. There were some deaths when the dose was used as it was used in multiple myeloma, and so now we're down to several trials looking at different doses in CLL, and it's being looked at in both the frontline setting and in the relapse setting. And
0: also mantle cell, diffuse large b Yes, and as a
3: maintenance also. So rituximab and lenalidomide as maintenance is now being addressed in some tumors.
0: Fascinating. I mean, you would think, I mean, people seem, we were talking yesterday, people seem to do pretty well on longer-term lenalidomide. Is that your experience, Amy? And do you think that kind of a strategy from a quality of life point of view, if it turns out to be more effective, would be tolerable?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Patients tolerate it relatively well. Everybody just wants to take a pill. (laughs) And and have it, you know, have their disease controlled with a pill. I mean, I think this is a great drug for all of these patients. Again, it's a chronic disease. We need lots of things in our toolbox that are well tolerated, and this is easy for them to take.
2: The other thing we're looking at, too, is its use in combination with other therapies. So we have a clinical trial looking at the combination of Revlimid and Rituxin and Rituxin refractory patients and Uh whether or not we can overcome that Rituxin refractoriness. And it looks like Knockwood will be published at some point, but possibly.
0: Uh-huh. Go ahead. Myron, we said we weren't going to talk about mice or laboratory stuff, but <laughs> I'll give you 30 seconds to explain why maybe lenalidomide and rituximab could in some way be synergistic and sounds like maybe some hints in resistant patients.
4: Oh, I think it's very exciting because it's a very unique mechanisms, not just one, but multiple mechanisms of action. As mentioned, it maybe decreases the blood supply to the actual tumor cells. It stimulates the patient's own T cell immunity, And it has multifactorial. It makes the environment inhospitable for the cancer cell. And it also activates natural killer cells. We did mouse studies, as you mentioned, in the laboratory where actually these immunomodulatory, these thalidomide derivatives, actually stimulated natural killer cells, not only increased the numbers in the mice, but also activated them so they had better killing ability. Then when you added rituximab, the rituximab was able to use the NK cells like more soldiers to kill more tumor cells, and we actually saw synergy. What was interesting, when you knocked out the natural killer cells and gave the exact same dose of rituximab and letalidomide, there was no benefit at all. You almost, it was just the same as if you just gave rituximab alone. So mechanistically, there's ways of combining these agents based on what they do to the actual patient's immune system and how to logically combine them.
0: Myron really has done some of the sentinel research on anti-CD20 antibodies and rituximab. What about some of the new agents? We now have ofatumumab out there, Myron. How does that work? Any reason to think it would have any advantage over rituximab?
4: I'll put a plug in. There's an ASCO poster from one of my graduate students, so go see that at ASCO if you're going. But it's interesting. Some people, actually, when you go into the field, they say, well, ofatumab is being given at a higher dose, so it's basically rituximab at a higher dose. It's not. It recognizes a different part of the CD20 target on the actual tumor cell, which is closer to the surface of the actual tumor cell to its membrane. And it has different activities. It looks like when we actually were comparing them head-to-head, and we'll be publishing our results in the near future, there's very clear differences. Now, whether or not they'll translate into major differences in the patient, we'll have to wait with clinical trials. The other thing is there's a GA-101, which Roche has, that may be the successor eventually to rituximab, And it is also different. And although it recognizes the same spot where rituximab binds, it has a different ability to maybe kill the cancer
0: cell via different mechanisms.
3: And the important thing is these do work better in CLL than rituximab.
0: I mean, how do you determine that something works better than rituximab in terms of, you know, really do a randomized study that, you know, when you have an agent that's really working well, it's not that easy to find that something works a little bit better. Well, the first trial that I was involved
4: the PI was ofatumab, and rituximab-resistant follicular lymphoma was not a home run, 11% response rate. But you took the worst of the worst patients, and it was like they were looking for a home run. didn't happen. So the question is, really, if you took patients from the beginning and you randomized them between antibody A versus B, either alone or in combination. That's the true answer. That's one way of getting to it. Whether or not those studies are going to be done or not is another thing. So they question. would
0: take, but 10 years and 5,000 right. patients? And, you know, is it worth putting all those <laughs> right. patients and, on and a study? Right, <laughs> and yeah, It's very difficult because then you're looking at surrogates.
4: Is really complete remission rates important or molecular CRs? Do we clear every cell even at the molecular level in the blood and marrow? Perhaps that'll translate into longer remission. We, a lot of people believe that's true.
0: Yeah, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the study that proved that aromatase in herb is working breast cancer. It was 9,000 patients that they had to put on to actually see a 20% difference. Let's talk about the last patient. Now we're back to a 50 year old man, Lisa.
2: Yeah, he's a 50 year old gentleman who is a reverend and had his own congregation that he felt very in touch with. And so, becomes part of our decision-making when we talked about therapies with him. But he had three children. He was diagnosed with CLL. And his diagnosis was based really on large lymph nodes when he first presented to us. It was less about his blood. He had a few white blood cells that were elevated, but not anything very serious. Before we go on,
0: Stephanie, can you just clarify CLL versus SLL?
3: Yes. CLL, by definition, you have to have more than 5,000 circulating monoclonal B cells as determined by flow cytometry.
0: But the thinking is it's kind of the same, same disease?
3: disease? Same disease, same Treated the same, too.
0: Again, before we get into his medical management again, what was the psychosocial situation? What was his reaction, 50 years old, having this diagnosis?
3: He was actually pretty
2: devastated He didn't ever, like, question his religion or anything, which was what I sort of thought he was going to do. But, you know, he was pretty devastated. And the reason for that was because we thought that he had more serious of a disease when he was first diagnosed. This was not your run-of-the-mill CLL that maybe could be watched and waited for many years. We had a feeling he was probably going to need treatment within a few years of his diagnosis. And so we sort of told him that initially so that it would get him ready in the future. But he was lucky enough to have three years without therapy.
0: What was it like during the three years for him? And again, this whole issue, of observing somebody with any cancer, including CLL.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting because the same as Amy's patient, they tend, if you're lucky enough to be a watch and waiter, they get into the groove and they don't ever want to be treated. They want to be one of those lucky ones that never need treatment. And so it's, sometimes it's hard to eventually convince them that, No, it's now it's time we actually need treatment, and so in him we decided to treat him because his lymph nodes did get extremely large. His tonsils actually got so big that they were almost touching in the back of his throat. He started having sleep apnea, and he was snoring, and he was driving his wife crazy. And so, that's That's a major reason. (laughs) See, it's all about the women.
0: NCLL, they'll do it every time.
2: (laughs) So we actually discussed a lot of therapies for him initially, but decided on Rituxan alone. And the reason was similar to what Amy is. He did not want to change his lifestyle. He did not want to not be there for his congregation and and be involved in what his normal life was. So we did end up treating him with Rituxan as first therapy. What happened? He did have some response after his first course, although it was not even a PR, but his snoring got better and his lymph nodes shrank a little bit. And so we decided to put him on maintenance rituxin to see if we could get sort of more mileage out of it. And that's one of the things that we have observed over the years of doing this is that if you give rituxin maintenance, sometimes you'll get a little bit more shrinkage each time that you give the drug. And those lucky patients that can just stay on rituxin maintenance, it does work for some of those patients. He did eventually relapse, however, and he sort of relapsed with a vengeance. It came back sort of quickly, and we did re-biopsy him to make sure there was no transformation. We actually did a PET CT on him. I don't know how we got it through his insurance company, but we did. And there was no super hot areas on PET or anything that would guide us for biopsy, but he did end up getting you know, normal SLL was what we found, still considered... Low grade disease, no transformation. So then we, he actually was from Lancaster, and that's about an hour and a half to two hours from Philadelphia. And so we sent him back to his primary oncologist, and after long discussions about what the options were, he decided to get flutarabine cytoxin in combination with rituxin again, and he got that locally. It ended up that he got a horrible pulmonary toxicity. And actually, all three of those drugs, rituxin fludarabine, and cytoxin, can have some pulmonary pneumonitis as a sequelae of receiving those. So
0: Rituximab can cause a pulmonary pneumonitis? Absolutely. Rituxin rare. can. It's very, very rare. rare yeah. but very, very rare. Potentially life-threatening. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So and how did it manifest? What was the first symptom or sign?
2: Well, he started to get some shortness of breath and some wheezing, and it actually started to resolve a little bit, and so we sort of thought maybe it was pneumonia or just an upper respiratory tract infection. And you
0: imaged him? Anything there?
2: Yeah. They did a chest x-ray locally, and he was sort of managed locally. Not lost to us, but like we weren't sort of participating in that part of it. So often pneumonitis is not seen on chest x-ray. You really need a high-resolution CAT scan to see these subtle changes in the lungs, and that was not done at his local oncologist. And so they gave the second cycle, and very shortly after the second cycle, he was in the ICU for about six weeks with a horrible pulmonary reaction, so no more FCR for him. <laughs> and
0: how was he managed when he had this? With steroids or what? Yeah,
2: that's how we, we do manage it. He, he ended up on high doses of steroids, but he was intubated. He was that ill with his pneumonitis, wow. and so wow. he spent probably about a week on the vent before they were able to wean him off of that but they did treat him with hydro-steroids.
0: And when did you see him at that point?
2: We didn't see him for a while because he was in the ICU in Lancaster, so we didn't see him probably for at least two months until after he was discharged from the hospital.
0: How was he at that point?
2: He was better, much better, but quite traumatized, actually. <laughs> he was pretty scared at that point, and I think that that really... Unfortunately, drove home how serious his disease was as well and really scared him and at that point he was actually willing to change his lifestyle for his health which is sometimes a transition that patients will make if they become seriously ill
0: in what way did he change his lifestyle
2: well he started vacationing more actually <laughs> he he Developed an addiction to Hawaii, <laughs> but he's less serious about his work, although you know he's still very serious about it and very dedicated to his congregation, but he knows that you know, he's also important and that he has to take care of himself and enjoy his life as well.
0: What's his disease state right now?
2: Well, right now he's in remission, probably not complete remission, but he ended up going on a clinical trial when he relapsed. Actually, he got a pretty good response out of the FCR that he did have, and so was able to stay in remission until 2007. And then he returned, and his white count started going up, and he got anemic, and he, he got bulky disease again. And so we actually put him on a clinical trial using lenalidomide. And he remains on lenalidomide, although he's not in CR. His disease is well controlled.
0: How is he tolerating the lenalidomide? Pretty
2: well, actually. He started out probably at those higher doses because at the time we started it, that's sort of what we were doing. So, but I think we gave him 15 milligrams to start. He did have a little bit of a flare reaction, but no tumor lysis, and it was treated with steroids and, him, and that helped to bulk him as well a little bit.
4: The FCR, how many cycles of FCR did he get? He only got two. And I'm wondering, did anybody check immunoglobulin levels? So there is an association, even just CLL, with hypogammaglobulinemia. Yeah. And I'm wondering, are we sure that it was not an infection that they initially they precipitated this? Or did they actually do lung biopsies showing that the patient had damage to he the actually, lung?
2: He actually had lung biopsies yeah. that showed the pneumonitis. Actually, I had a couple of lung biopsies, unfortunately, for him. But... The interesting thing is now that he's on lenalidomide, he had a pretty bad flare reaction that sort of scared and us. And how long's he been on the len? Lo- the- Since two thousand seven.
0: Amy, let's just kind of finish out a little bit on the issue of patient education and patients with CLL receiving FCR. This is obviously a very common regimen, not that easy. fludarabine in particular, an issue. What do you say to patients?
1: So what I'll say to everybody is we give very little FCR because of the toxicity. We're like Myron's camp and give more FC than FCR because it is more toxic. And so patients do require a tremendous amount of education you know, looking for infections, you know, GI toxicity. And really, I mean, with FCR, the most important thing that you can do is educate them that they really need to keep their visits. You need to watch them very closely. Even if they feel well, they need to come back to get their counts checked, to look at their electrolytes, to make sure everything is okay. But they really also need to know what are the showstoppers that you need to stop your life and call or pack your bag and come in for. Those are the most important things for FCR. And I think with the CLL population it makes it a tougher regimen because many of the things that patients have gotten, if they're previously treated, many of the things that patients received before FCR were not as toxic as FCR. And so it sort of catches them by surprise if you don't make sure that they understand it is different than the things that they may have received previously.
0: So I'm just going to close with a couple of questions from the audience. We've got tons of great questions, but you all had so much to say. We will address all of these but a couple of questions that I thought were interesting. One, I haven't heard about Myron. Is there an association between rituximab and CNS disorders?
4: Yeah, there is actually. uh, It's been recently, in recent press, and there was actually a warning with the label that patients can get PML, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. Now, it's a little strange. I'm reviewing this actually timely for ASCO as one of the potential complications of rituximab or even rituximab maintenance. But even before rituximab and other antibodies, and also patients that just have a history of CLL or low-grade lymphoma can develop this very horrific demyelinating. It's actually pretty much fatal, and if it's not fatal, patients are left as vegetables, essentially, whereas actually they... I mean, how many def- cases have been seen of this? You know, it's funny. There's at least a couple dozen. And originally it was thought that it was in patients that... that I mean, 's that's out of thousands of patients. Well, though. there's hundreds of thousands of patients. There's millions probably got rituximab around the world or... The number of doses, so it's not a high percentage, but it's a really meaningful percentage if you're the one that gets it. Yeah. Do you think it? Do you so, think it's for real? It's I mean, it's so uh, hard to tell so, this with a rare. Whether health.
2: or not it's related to rituxan, you mean? Yeah, it, I think you know, it's related I, to the
4: therapy and the underlying disease. And yeah, yeah,
3: underlying yeah.
2: disease,
4: right?
3: But
2: it's I have interesting a because patient that, in the hospital with yes. it right now who yes. never was treated. She has CLL. She's never treated.
4: The virus actually is endemic. It's in everybody's body, and somehow it's reactivated, kind of like when people get shingles. It's not understood why, but then it goes into the CNS. And it's difficult to treat. There's only been anecdotal therapies, and it's very difficult. Once patients have it diagnosed, it's essentially fatal very We're rapidly. We're going to write a clinical
2: trial actually for co stimulated autologous T cell reinfusions. That's sort of what we've really. been doing on a case by case basis.